0: it out a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it i'm brian latendry
1: and i'm anthony johnston and today we are discussing the uh, finally finally at last discussing the album the new order from testament uh from 1988 the heyday of the thrash era i suppose you could say uh yeah it's taken us a long time to get around to this we know
0: this is our holy grail episode you know, this kind is of, the yeah. this was definitely easily, if we were running an informal poll, uh, the most requested band that we yeah. have yet to talk about on this show, for sure.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, perhaps not album. I'm sure there right, were plenty right. of people who'd like us to who wanted us to cover this album, but as we'll discuss, the thing about Testament is that their early material, there's so much good stuff in there. As I mentioned at the end of the last regular episode, I really could have picked any one of like four albums. Uh and we would have had the same great discussion about them i'm sure they just they're all slightly different but they're all just as good um but as i mentioned i chose this one because it was their first their first proper album if you like the first one where they really kind of figured out who they were and what sort of band they wanted to be and what sound they had and the first one that really feels like a complete proper work whereas the first album the legacy is you know it's a, it's a fine album but you can tell it's a band that aren't quite together yet uh i agree this album absolutely feels like you know uh like a band that has it together and knows what they're doing
0: yeah especially when we talk about like debut albums from big thrash bands i don't think their debut album stands up to some of those other debuts but this album no um,
1: actually let's be honest there are a lot of the thrash bands their debut albums aren't that great, and it takes it took them, you know, even the big four, it took most of them a couple of albums to really start producing classics. You know, I know everybody loves Kill 'em All, but really, Kill 'em All's patchy. It's got some great tracks on it, but it's got some clunkers as well, you know. Um, and it was, I was delighting. referring to the masterpiece that amazing.
0: is Killing is My Business. That's, uh, of course, <laughs> no, of so course let's you just were. fill out that bingo, uh, thing, which, uh, often I will but say you know is what my mean? favorite Megadeth album, but yes, um, <laughs> yeah, no, totally, and uh, And it's so weird, too. Like, you just brought up a thought for me, is that we talk a lot about how, for many bands, like, that first album is the songs that they've been playing in clubs forever, right? And so that first album is usually very polished. But I think that feels like it was more consistent on, like, the hair metal side and the glam metal side for me. Because I feel like when, in the 80s, like, almost every single debut album that I heard from. Uh, like a hair metal band or a glam metal band was amazing. And most of them struggled in their second album because they just couldn't follow it up with whatever they had sort of built on Sunset Strip, you know, for years and and honed in that kind of thing with thrash. I almost feel like it's the second album that really starts to solidify that. So just, just a bit different for like debut albums in, in for a lot of the other stuff I listened to were, were pretty rock solid.
1: Yeah. Well, here's my theory on that. The It's because, and we have talked about this before, and I'm sure I've probably said something like this before, uh, those bands rely, their tunes are sort of rock and roll barnstormers. They rely on, you know, sort of an element of traditional craft, if you like, you know, getting the yeah. crowd moving, knowing what works to get a crowd moving and have everybody singing along and all that sort of stuff. You know, that's what makes those songs great. And what makes those bands popular? And yeah, you can hone that over years in the clubs. Suddenly, when you've got six months to write an album and you're in a studio, that's much more difficult to do. Um, whereas Thrash, to me anyway, was always more progressive than that sort of stuff. You know, it's not quite prog metal, obviously. It's not quite prog rock, but it is more progressive. And there's more of a focus on composition and complex songwriting, especially with some of the, you know, crazy riffs that early thrash bands used to come up with. For sure. Um, And that does benefit from time, from just experience of having, you know, put out a record already and going, okay, well that did or didn't work on the record, regardless of what works live. And then having time to sit down in a studio and write new material with that experience. I think it just benefits more from that process.
0: And I also feel like thrash is a genre that, uh, is constantly bouncing off of itself too. You know what yes. I mean? So like these guys seeing what each other were doing, hearing what each other were doing. Well, and how one that, and, yeah, totally. Um, and then of course, as a lot of these bands sort of polished their early lineups, right. They, you know, they, you see a lot of that with a lot of these bands of like that one member that comes in or, or an element that comes into the band that really, solidifies the sound of that band and uh, you know you kind of alluded to that a little bit but i think uh we'll get into it when we talk about sort of Skolnick's contribution to this album but um but yeah man we hit the ground running on that we did we did but before we get into
1: (laughs) before we get into uh you know sort of other regular stuff as well the other thing that i wanted to say which is kind of appropriate given that we are finally doing testament this is our 60th episode
0: holy shit now
1: i I somehow missed 50. Uh, I thought I thought that this was 50. For some reason, I was sort of like in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, this is probably our 50th episode. I should check. And then I looked it up and realized that actually it's 60 and almost two of the month, five years. It's actually just gone five years that we've been doing the show now.
0: That is amazing. Uh, I was just going to add, that was going to be my follow-up question is how long has it been? 60 was my old, uh, was my football number when I played football in high school. Oh, right. So I figured that's <laughs> why we chose this uh, number to celebrate instead of 50. Um, but five Mine years, four man. To
1: five, it doesn't really work.
0: Nice. What position did you play? Did we ever talk about this? Uh,
1: I'm not sure if we did. I was a running back. Uh, this was on the youth my local youth team. Obviously yeah. over here, we didn't have like, you know, school teams or anything like that. It was all very much, uh, you know, extracurricular hobby, but yeah, I was running back.
0: I was an offensive lineman. So, if we ever put the uh, the old you've men's, got the hype uh, for
1: that, I suppose yeah. if we
0: ever put the old writers football team together, so I can block for you, <laughs> it'd be good.
1: <laughs> It'll be the slowest game you've ever seen.
0: Yeah <laughs> exactly. hobbling around. It'll be a lot of walkthroughs, you know, yeah. just sort of demonstrating our knowledge of the playbook. Um, five freaking we, years, man. that's crazy.
1: It really is, it really is. uh, and you know, as we say so often, we couldn't do it without the uh, wonderful support of all our patrons. And we have four new patrons since the last episode, uh, since the last regular episode anyway, and they are Alexandru Anea, John Mason, J.D. Savari, and somebody just calling themselves A.B. No idea who that is, but hello, I like it,
0: keeping it simple.
1: Yep. Thank you all, and thank you to everyone else who uh, continues to support us on Patreon, because i mean right now obviously it's really hard it's really sort of weird to ask people to spend money uh considering the state of the world and the state of everybody's finances so we really really appreciate it uh that people are willing to give us you know as we say a dollar an episode that's all we ask for but it's really gratifying that so many people do thank you
0: yeah absolutely and and even a dollar in these times is uh in these uncertain times as they get referred to so often, but they are right. And so the fact that people continue to support the show and, and even cooler, the fact that people continue to be so active in the Facebook group and, and in just social media in general, in talking about the shows, recommending music to each other, having great conversations. Like I was just talking to you about this off the air, but for me, and I suspect for a lot of people that listen to the show music and it's it, that therapeutic effect that it has on our lives has become even more important during this period of time, like just as a, as a, uh, in terms of like self-care, like I, I listen to a ton of music anyways, but I feel like now it, music has become even more important to me if that's possible, uh, just in terms of being able to manage what's happening in the world, in my life, at work, all that kind of stuff now. so. um
1: And especially because, uh, you know, because so many of us are still in lockdown or isolation or quarantine or whatever, frankly, for some of us, it's difficult to get any time to ourselves, Uh, you know, much more so than when we had a commute or when we could take a break at the office or whatever, you know, right now, that's, that's difficult for a lot of people to do. So having some, you know, being able to put on headphones and listen to some music or something to isolate yourself from everything else that's going on for a while is I think, you know, I think people appreciate it even more just because they miss it because they miss it, you know, cause it's more difficult to do now.
0: Yeah. And just the, the connection that you have to a lot of these albums, right. And a lot of these bands to times in your life that in some ways were happier or great memories or <laughs> that kind of stuff, like is really great. I'd be interested to know, and maybe this is one for the Facebook group of like, There are specific albums that have sort of gotten people through particular times in their lives or they remember or they have a fondness for, even though maybe it's not the band's best album because it's tied to that particular time in your life or something like that. I wonder what people sort of, uh, and there might have been a thread on this, but I I wonder what is the album during this time of quarantine, this time of of sort of uh, COVID, that is like people's go-to album. That they that they just is it's kind of helping them get through, you know, the time. It's Uh, it's um,
1: tricky, that isn't it? Because I know what you mean. I've got albums that I kind of I put on, and they instantly remind me of a time that you know they sort of transport me back to something that I was doing when I was younger. When I used to listen to the album on rotation or whatever. Are people really going to want to have that experience with the pandemic? Are they going to want to listen to an album in five years' time and go, oh yeah, that was twenty (laughs) twenty?
0: I think for me, it's kind of like, oh man, man, that album. I listened to that a lot during that period of time, <laughs> like because it was uh, just an escape or something like that, or like that was that was an album. I feel like a lot of times we're saying like, man, this is something I really needed, right? And I yeah, think I for, for the fond a lot of albums, could be yeah. for yeah,
1: you know, yeah, for the benefits that the album brought you, rather than the time you were living in. Yeah, fair enough.
0: Like, I, like uh, I think of Animal Crossing right now, right? Where people are like, man, this was the game we needed in 2020. Was this just, like, super, you mm-hmm. know, um, chill, uh, community-building, great game that everybody can sort of rally around? And, and it's, like, the feel-good thing of 2020. It's like, I wonder what uh, I wonder what that album is for people. Like, what is the album, you know, whether it's a feel-good album or not, but what is the sort of cathartic uh, album for you or, or therapeutic album for you in 2020 that's, like, helping... In whatever small way to to deal with everything that's been going on, or is it that you go back to the oldies? You know, because I think it's a combination oh, for me. I've been of doing like, that
1: a lot. I must admit, yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Um, I've been going back to a lot of stuff that I that I grew up with, and um, but also there's been some really good metal releases this year, which. We can we can save they that have. particular
1: uh, <laughs> conversation
0: true, for later. Yeah. One thing I did want to mention real quick as as we're talking about community and group, obviously we'll we'll talk about the feedback on the last episode real quick. But um, there was a post this week by Christopher Powell because Frankie Benali passed away. Yes, um, and he had been dealing with cancer, and um, I, I don't know that anybody knew that it was and it, it was bad, but it still felt sudden. You know, um, his sort of passing here, and there was a lot of. Great conversation just around, like, wanting to do an episode around Wasp and stuff like that. We will very likely do a Wasp episode at some point in time. Um,
1: I know they've been on your list. They're one of those bands that have been on your list pretty much since we started the show.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because the album that I would probably choose off the top of my head would be the Headless Children, which is something that we uh, Matt and I talked about on Power chords a little while back. And and there's an episode of Power chords a while back where Matt interviewed Frankie, and we have a segment on that on our uh, show where we call it Six Degrees of Frankie B, where we basically try to connect the two artists (laughs) that we're talking about Um, because he he had done you know he had played in a lot of different bands and stuff like that, been on a lot of different albums, and he was someone who it felt like everyone in the music community knew Frankie Benalli and, uh, you see the outpouring of, of love for him over this past week in, in light of his passing of just like so many people knew him and so many people had, uh, nothing but good things to say about him. And so, uh, so yeah, while, while we won't immediately have a wasp episode, they are on the radar and, uh, it's good to see what recommend what recommendations people. It seems like the Crimson Idol is one that people would are really wanting to see. Um, obviously, because of Bob Kulik as well. So, but I don't know. The Crimson Idol is not really my favorite WASP album. So, anyways, good good conversation about WASP. I'm not familiar Wasp. with
1: them at all, really, beyond a couple of the you know the big hit singles. So, uh, yeah, I can't really weigh in on that. But whatever we choose, you know, we can. Uh we can talk around as we always do we can talk around you know the other albums as well
0: well and the thing about wasp and and also with quiet riot is that um my my biggest struggling point with both of those bands and i like both of those bands was that they were inconsistent and there's not even on their best albums there's a good amount of inconsistency and so picking the one uh to talk about you know is except for i feel like the headless children is a really good one and we could we could always do that one but um yeah. So, anyways, I just wanted to—I didn't want to not mention this week that that was big news. Obviously, that Frankie Benali passed away, and uh, there's been a lot of conversation on the Facebook page. So, there there will be a wasp episode at some point in time. But I have an internal theme for this year and this volume that we're currently doing with uh, Thresh it oh, Out. Okay. So, oh, yeah.
1: Oh, oh, like me last time, you got the, the secret. <laughs> <laughs> theme running through yeah, the. A, uh, it,
0: your <laughs> themes are always more well thought out than I am, uh, than mine are. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, mine is is pretty simple and straightforward. But, uh, but yeah, I do have a theme, and uh, for this particular volume, that wouldn't necessarily fit this theme. But I uh. am, I am absolutely saddened by the passing of Frankie, and uh, have been listening to some WASP albums, including, and I mentioned this in the group, "Dying for the World," which for some reason is just one of those albums that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people don't think it's one of their best, but I go back to time and time and time again, and um, yeah. So I feel like you could do
1: that two degrees thing with Gene
0: Hoagland these days. I think you would well, be the sort of modern do.
1: equivalent, wouldn't he? Including Testaments, of course,
0: which is such a great segue, Anthony, into the feedback <laughs> that we got on the last episode, which of course was our death clock death album episode, and apparently Featuring our longest Mr. Hoagland episode on drums, ever. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it the, that of all the albums that we've covered, by a couple of minutes, it is now our longest episode of the podcast ever.
0: <laughs> and you know what's wild about that is, uh, so obviously going back and listening to the Death Album got me really back into Death Clock again, and over the past few weeks I have been spending so much time with the Death Album 3, which now is my favourite Of the Death Clock albums. And I would have never thought that before. Like, I had listened to them all, but the first one is the one that really grabbed me, the one that we talked about. But I've been revisiting that third album, and hot damn is that album freaking fantastic. I think for people who listened to this first one with us and thought that it wasn't quite there yet, maybe it was a little bit too samey in parts, maybe it wasn't. Go check out the third one to see kind of where they went. I think that the the sort of nathan explosion um it's more aggressive it's more developed i think his, his sort of his growl his voice is more developed on that third album the the sort of complexity of that album is two steps ahead of where this first death clock album is it's really really good and uh probably my favorite one so i've been listening to the crap out of that but um but jumping into some of the feedback here uh you had mentioned that, you know, people just like quoting stuff from the show. So people are, you know, quote, like Tordith is to saying, so strong my face is, you punch, break fingers. Yeah. <laughs> we had a good uh, conversation about that. Um, uh, Hendel said, I somehow missed Metalocalypse, but found Death Clock via the Ari Best Batman videos. Do you remember the Batman, like the Metal Batman videos that came out on YouTube a while back? That was uh, one of them was off of a uh, the Mermaider song.
1: I'm not sure um, I do remember that. Oh,
0: there's a link know. to the, the video on our uh chat here in the in the Facebook thread there. Uh Roy said, Oh my god, you fucking did it. Kudos to Brian Latendry and Anthony Johnston. <laughs> so people were very excited that we went ahead and uh and Torta said, It's my dog Toki. So his dog's name is Toki. <laughs> uh Let's see what else we have. Charles said, Love the album, though my favorite is Death Clock 3. As I just mentioned, I didn't even read that until just now. Uh, it's much more varied and melodic. About Anthony's point, I think it's almost impossible for me to disassociate the music from the show. Uh, I can't help but picture Murderface slapping the bass when I hear any song. The best episodes to me are the ones dealing with industry and creative process, especially because there is always a meta-narrative going on. And that is something that's super true of Metalocalypse uh, as a show. Is just that it, it does it has quite a commentary on the industry and a lot of the, and also a lot of the egos and bands and stuff like that. Like it really is the sort of thrash spinal tap um, sort of thing. And, and the episodes can be hit or miss, but the ones that hit man, some really good stuff there. Uh, Mike said, so pleased about Testament homework. You have chosen the correct album. Well, we'll see. We're going to (laughs) talk about that today. Uh, Dave said only about an hour in and checking because it's a long episode, but one thing that the, about the show that can be hard to see at first glance is that it has an actual character arcs that pay out in the finale, the Doomstar Requiem. If you follow the show to the end, the episode is very rewarding. The other is, while I like the original Death album, I think the second one is way better. Uh, I think the music is better while the songs are tied to episodes. They're more able to stand on their own as examples of over-the-top death metal songs. Uh, and then he had a couple other comments later on. But yeah, uh, we talked about that, too. Death album, too, is great as well. and like I said I think the third one might be my favorite now. So if you even liked this album at all, you should definitely check out 2 and 3 because I think it may have more of what you liked. Um let's see what else. Oh, we talked about the the spectrum of uh Banshee to Cookie Monster. So I'm surprised we don't have a graphic on that yet, the whole uh <laughs> yeah. the whole vocal spectrum there. I think I think there's more uh to mind there. So hopefully that will come around. Uh, Kenneth said, I will not lie. I was worried about this. You could hear Anthony gearing up for, yeah, I don't like it, about three minutes before he said it. <laughs> uh, he said, I do think it was an odd choice to go into this knowing nothing about the show, as I don't think the music can can or is meant to stand on its own. I'm going to come back to that, because I, I think I disagree with that. Uh, he says, anyways, a fun show, as always, even if I did feel a bit bad for Brian, as it felt like he was trying to explain the joke, and that never goes well. <laughs> <That's> um, <true. laughs> uh, but as no, a big fan I, I, of...
1: I, think, yeah, I disagree as well because, like, it, I mean, I understand where he's coming from, but the fact is that they put this record out as a record. They sold it as a record by itself. It wasn't a record that, or you know, every copy came with like a DVD of the series or something. It just came out as a record, and you know, if you put it out there as a record, you've got to you've got to ex- expect and accept that people are gonna listen to it as a record.
0: And I think we covered this in the show, but like best-selling or highest-charting death metal album ever, uh, uh, superseded by number two, superseded by number three. Like in just in terms of the amount of sales and the chart position and everything else of these albums, like they were very successful. As uh, now, granted, a lot of people attribute that to the the fanaticism about the show, and and obviously that's true. But I I do think that the album stands alone, and I think that. The third one in particular really does. But, um, yeah, I just keep going back to all of that stuff. CJ said, I don't know why, but I'm really resisting listening to this episode. I've never seen the show. In general, I don't really like comedy music, but I know loads of people who love it. So this is probably the easiest way to introduce myself. He, uh, I wonder if he comes back to that. Let's see. Oh, he said, it looks so unappealing to me. He said, but then I thought that about Twisted Sister. That's right. If any of you yep. didn't listen to a Twisted Sister episode, you, you go back and you listen to that because it's really good. That
1: was a revelation to a lot of us, yeah.
0: Uh, Stuart said, I'd never seen Metalocalypse. Mm-hmm. I, and this actually surprises me. There's a lot of people who never saw Metalocalypse. I guess I just thought that it was kind of part of Metalhead common knowledge at this point. But yeah, it seems like, I, I think I overestimated the amount of people who actually had seen that show. Um Which was really interesting because I I just thought, like, everybody had seen that show, but apparently not. He said, I never seen Metalocalypse. I kind of liked the album, though. The playing was on point for me, and I'm fine with the vocal style. Like Antony, though, I didn't get that much comedy out of it. Uh, Somewhere around the more extreme ends of metal, sublime, and ridiculous become close neighbors. Uh, He said, (laughs) so comedy death metal is just kind of death metal for me. I'll stick to something like Devin Townsend's Punky Brewster for an album that is a bit of metal-related comedy and know the irony of Debbie singing Don't Make Me Cut My Hair when even the skulllet is well uh, in the past isn't lost on me. I didn't know that he did a album called Punky Brewster and whether or not that is one that people really enjoy. Um, let's see... Doug said, "When Anthony mentioned Cannibal Corpse, I imagine he's referring to their appearance in Ace Ventura: Pet Detective." Would it surprise you to know that Jim Carrey really wanted them in the film because he was a big fan of their records?
1: Yeah, I'm. I've heard that before, and I've seen the the bit he did on a talk show, like you know, sort of doing death metal growls at the time. I I don't know. I'm I've never been convinced that that wasn't just a whole bit, and that you know. But but then you have to think. Well, why why would he why go to those lengths if it was just a bit? Why bother getting an actual death metal band in the movie? Yeah. So yeah, I, I really don't know. It's maybe that's true. I don't think we'll ever know. You know, fully whether it is. But that is yes, absolutely the most prominent example of that that I was uh, that I could think of that I was referring to. But there are there are definitely others. I'm trying to think. I cannot think which movie it is now. Maybe listeners will be able to help me out. There's also definitely. A nightclub in, in in an action film. I'm thinking, uh, and it's not Blade, but the, it's a movie with that sort of aesthetic, where there is, a, you know, again, a real band playing uh, on stage in the background. And I just cannot think from the night. Is it Armored
0: Saint in Hellraiser Three? I think they are. Did we talk about this? I'm I think we did. That's
1: that's not what I'm thinking of, but that is another example. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, anyway, the, the point being that yes, that is the example. Oh no, I was Hellraiser Two, of. maybe. Oh, was it? Well, whichever. Oh, Whoa,
0: whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's see. Oh, let's Armistice honest, made a brief no, appearance no. in the 1992 horror film Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. They play a, a right. goth nightclub. Uh, yes, I thought it is Hellraiser Let, 3. Let's
1: be honest. After the, It's much like things like the Halloween and uh, Friday the 13th movies. After the first one, they are all kind of merge into one another.
0: <laughs> I kind of like 3 because it had the one that one of the Cenobites had the, had the CDs in their head, which is actually something that was <laughs> copied by Cabin in the Woods. Um, with the Cenobite-like character that had, like, the, the saw blades as part oh. of their head. They were, they were the nod to, That was a nod to Hellraiser oh, 3. Ah, yeah, right, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, That's a
1: great film, Cabin in the Woods. If anybody out there hasn't seen oh that... Oh,
0: my God, so good. Grateful. I, I will never forget being in the movie theater, watching that opening weekend, and turning to the person I was with and saying, if there's a scene where they let all of those nightmares out together, this is going to be the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And then when they did it, I was (laughs) like, they're fucking doing it. They're doing it. Like I was so excited. Um, I wish that it was a little bit more practical in the effects on that, but just the fact that they did that, that moment existed in the film was so,
1: yeah. Well, uh, it made my heart happy. Let's be honest. It's a fairly low budget affair. So for sure, they did pretty well with what they had.
0: (laughs) I agree. Yeah. I absolutely love that movie. Um, Okay, a couple more comments. Todd said, I like Small's vocals just fine in episodes of the show, but unfortunately I can't listen to a full album of them without homogenous vocal fatigue syndrome setting in. I think I would like this album more if they had brought in a few guest vocalists to add a little variety in the choruses on just a few of the songs. A little bit of variety can go a long way toward making singers with limited range easier for me to enjoy over a full album. And I think that's a sentiment that others probably share about this album as well. And he went on to say, because we continued the conversation, ideally my perfect remix would feature singers from other bands handling one verse or helping out on the chorus or maybe a quarter of the songs. Looking at the list of musicians who have guested on the show, it seems likely there would be plenty of singers who would be interested. And I'm sure there absolutely would be. Uh, Chris said, uh, Oh wow. I really like the death album by death clock right out of the gate. It had me at whisper growl <laughs> and the music, uh, just awesome thrash drums and guitar. It's excellent. Far above what I expected for a metal band parody. I've never seen the show, but might check out for a few laughs based on a few scenes that Brian described. Maybe someday you will cover spinal tap lawnmower death. I could not wait for Testament on the next show. I've not explored their music before. So I'm doing my homework. So, um,
1: yeah I mentioned yeah. lawmower death on the episode didn't i and I think I might have posted a link or two in the uh thread as well to some law mower death tracks because that's very law mower death is very more very much more parody than uh death clock you know the, the death clock stuff is kind of yeah there's comedy in it, but the music as we said is is played fairly straight whereas yep. law death even the music is silly
0: <laughs> right for sure. Uh, and the last one I'll say is Daniel said all I took away from this episode was the Cookie Monster spectrum. How does one quantify it? Whom should be in the spectrum of vocal talent? Maybe a linear model doesn't work. How about a Venn diagram? So it's good. It sounds like we've got our top scientists working on this now, and yeah. we will uh, eventually will eventually be able to come out with the uh, the spectrum.
1: I think we eventually uh, figured out that it should be at least a two way axis for from pitch uh you know from sort of like really deep to really high and then intelligibility as well so you know dividing it into quadrants yep um <laughs> but yes as you say <laughs> top men top men yeah we have, we have. On it.
0: <laughs> yeah our top scientists are working on that now all right well good great uh conversation as always uh in the wake of the episode and uh people very excited about the band that we're going to talk about today
1: Yes. So if you want to join in that conversation, remember that is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Um, and you can, you can go and join. We admit everyone, you know, as long as you're not a dick, it's fine. Uh, just click join, join the group and join in the conversation. Um, and I just realized actually I talked about Patreon earlier and I didn't give the URL. Uh, so if you do want to be one of those lovely people who supports us for a a dollar an episode, go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and uh, make your pledge, and we will be very grateful indeed. And so, yes, Testament. Oh, man. Uh, what is there to say about Testament that hasn't already been said? O- almost nothing, I would imagine. Uh, is there anybody out there listening who doesn't know Testament? I mean, I guess there probably are in the same way that, you know, that you said you assumed everybody had seen Well, we just had
0: that comment saying I haven't really dug into their, right. their catalog yet. Uh, and, so I, and, I think people know them even if they not... Like, like for example... I think say, they've just
1: been around long enough that everybody knows the name, don't they? Correct. Even if they don't know the music, yeah.
0: Yep, absolutely. And yeah. if you put any, any sort of collage of uh, thrash metal band logos together, Testament's going to be right near the top.
1: Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> their logo is an absolute... Much like the early Metallica logo is an absolute classic of, like, just ridiculous, that stereotypical, ridiculous thrash style. Um, yeah, just with the bonus obviously of starting and ending with the same letter so it uh yeah you know can be nice and symmetrical like your, oh, it's uh, perfect. yeah like your modern it's death great. metal logos <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah it formed in uh the bay area in the early 80s originally called legacy and they had to change that and so that's why the first album is called the legacy instead um although I don't think they had a song called Testament. (laughs) I think that was just something else that they came up with. They had a lot of lineup changes in the early days, but by the time they got to certainly this album, uh, they'd settled on what's now considered the classic lineup. So Eric Peterson, who is the uh, rhythm guitarist, occasional lead guitarist, and one of the main songwriters, uh, is the only apparently surviving founding member. Um, And then Chuck Billy, who came along later, is the only other member besides Peterson to have been on every Testament album
0: um, recommended by Steve Souza to replace him when yes. he moved over to Exodus.
1: Right. Cause Steve Souza was the original, uh, vocalist of the band. Yeah. And that was when they were still called legacy, I believe. Um, yep. and I think that's, regardless of the contribution of everybody else, and, you know, we'll get to people like Skolnick and stuff, uh, because obviously his contribution was huge, but regardless of everybody else's contribution, that is the core of Testament. It always has been. Peterson and Billy have always been the sort of, you know, the gruesome twosome. You can't imagine Testament without either of them. I, I cannot even contemplate a Testament album with somebody else's voice, you know, that doesn't have Chuck Billy's voice on it, which is why, actually... And I didn't realize this was nearly 20 years ago now. Can you believe it? But Chuck Billy developed uh, cancer yeah, in the early 2000s. I thought it's one of those things where I was like, oh yeah, that was about seven or eight years ago, wasn't it? No, <laughs> it was nearly 20 years ago. I know, um, And luckily he made a full recovery, thank goodness. Uh, and is, you know, well and healthy and has continued, you know, performing since. But I remember at the time thinking like, well, that's it. If we lose Chuck, we lose Testament. Like I cannot even con- contemplate a Testament album without his voice because it's so distinctive, so good and so much a part of their sound, much like Peterson's riffs.
0: Well, and I think it was the benefit concerts that they were doing for him at the time that brought Skolnick back into the fold, right? Cause they did, That's they right, did, yeah. um, uh, like Susa came back and they did like a legacy, uh, sort of reunion while they were raising funds for that. And that brought Skolnick back cause he hadn't been around for a, almost a decade at that point.
1: That's right. Yeah. He'd been off doing his jazz thing and what have you. So yeah, the rest of the band was Alex Skolnick on lead guitar, but also obviously live playing rhythm and a major songwriter on these early albums. And then Greg Christian on bass and Louis Clementi on drums, uh, which again, are, they're, because they're the rhythm section, are really responsible for a lot of Testament's early sound and actually differentiating them from a lot of other thrash bands. Clementi doesn't do blast beats like loads of the other thrash drummers did. You know, he'll do them occasionally, but most of his drumming is not blast beats. It's just, you know, it can be fast, but it's just regular four to the floor rhythm stuff. But he plays it very well. And what he's really good at and what the band as a whole does, and one of the things that I think defined... Testaments early sounds is rhythm changes. Lots of odd yes, rhythms, dude. lots of timing changes, lots of very, very rhythmic riffs where the drums, bass, and rhythm guitars are all working together in these unusual rhythms. And that to me is a, a core part of what sets Testaments sound, early Testament anyway, apart from all the other thrash bands because they just did it more than anybody else. And again, I totally it's kind agree, of... Dude you know, I associate that style with this band.
0: And for me, like their, their sort of sound is like, uh, but it had, and again, here's your Megadeth bingo bingo card. But to (laughs) me, you take like Exodus where Exodus for me is just riffs and shredding solos in the best possible way, like just absolute killer riffs. And then you take Megadeth for me, which I've always associated with like a higher level of technicality and uh, a more of a classical influence in a lot of their composition and stuff like that. And I feel like Testament fits right in the middle of that at its best or at, at the at the Testament that I enjoy the most uh, from yeah. their entire catalog is when they meld those two things. And there is, um, it's not proggy per se, but there is a well, Stolnik is,
1: I mean, he was a Satriani student, wasn't he? He was a Satriani uh, student, yep. Uh, and, you know, you can tell, because he plays very fast, he's a very gifted, technically accomplished, virtuoso player. But what he doesn't do uh, is let that take away from, the, get in the way of the songwriting. And that's, you know, I know I always bang on about songwriting, but that's one of the things that I think was a strength, a real strength of Early Testament compared to a lot of those other bands was that they may not have been quite as technically accomplished as Megadeth, or they may not have been quite as blistering as somebody like Exodus. Uh, But what they were, were, you know, they were, they were good enough in those areas and they had better constructed, better written songs, in my opinion, that had just better lyrics, better uh, melding of the lyrics and the vocals with the music They were tighter, you know, not too many very, very long songs in the early uh, Testament catalogue compared to a lot of the other thrash bands. And yeah, just like, to my mind, better composed songs. And I think a lot of that comes from Skolnick because he was one of the major songwriters. People think of him as just a lead guitarist, you know, a blistering lead guitarist and stuff. And yes, he is that. But I think a lot of people, unless they look at the credits, don't realise that he wrote almost all of their music with... Eric Peterson in those early days. He wasn't just yeah. writing solos. He was writing these riffs as well.
0: And I, I want to hit on that because to me, uh, there's two albums unless I have my math is incorrect. There are two albums where the two of them together handled most of the songwriting duties. It is this album and it is uh, dark roots of earth. Two of which I think it, a lot of people feel like dark roots of earth is their modern masterpiece. Of their, uh, of their later albums that they put out, Formation of Damnation Forward. Um, Dark Roots of Earth is a, is a favourite, and I bet a lot of people were would have put that up here as the one that they wanted us to talk about for this episode.
1: If we, we were going to do a modern album, that's the one I would have picked for sure, yeah.
0: Well, and, and the parallel between the two of them is these two splitting the writing duties or collaborating on most of the songs together. What happened after Skolnick left the band is that Peterson became... He was already, in many ways, the main songwriter, but he really became the main songwriter and the main lead at times as well, kind of moving forward. And when you look at some of their later stuff, um, Brotherhood of the Snake being a good example of that, like, it's all him, Peter. It's pretty much all Peterson uh, writing that stuff. And so the times where they come together and really, truly collaborate and bring those two styles together is where I feel like Testament is at their absolute best and where they are different from everybody else. That's out there, and there's actually a video that I'll I'll send you the link to Anthony, so you could put it in the show notes. But there was a a YouTube video from I think it was 2020 where Skolnick was playing the intro to uh, the New Order, and he was talking about how in the first album, a lot of those songs by the time he joined the band were already written. And so he, you know, there wasn't as much for him to contribute sort of right away, but on this album is where they truly started to collaborate. And he was talking about how he brought in a number of single note lines to the music, how he and Eric would put their heads together and sort of merge their two styles. And he would say like, yeah, if you listen to the sort of chorus riffs and stuff like that, those are classic Eric riffs whereas some of the verses with the the changes and things like that are more things that Skolnick would bring in and he would say you know uh a lot of times the stuff that he would bring to the table started a lot slower including the the stuff that he brought to the new order but then in working with Peterson like they would speed it up and and really sort of lock it into what the what the song needed to be but it's it's really cool to kind of listen to him talk about how their two styles together and when they would collaborate what each of them sort of brought to the table and so you know for um peterson i just associate him with their absolutely killer riffs and then the sort of flavor that skolnick brings in from a melodic standpoint that really sets them apart when it when it gels is to me the magic of testament
1: absolutely i mean you know i still like Albums like The Gathering and Formation of Damnation a lot. You know, I still think those are really great albums. And those were, you know, to take those two as examples, those were written almost entirely by Peterson, as you say. Um, Although, you know, over time, Billy wrote more and more of the lyrics himself. Uh, Although, you know, still not exclusively, I believe. Um, So I I still think those albums are great, but I agree that when Peterson and Skolnick work together, they create something that is greater than the sum of its parts they are clearly even though they have well no not even though because they have different approaches to songwriting and different ways of you know uh, of writing a metal song and a metal riff and what have you and i think it's the collision of those two approaches that makes what they what comes out the other end you know that makes the collaboration so unique um
0: Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, just to take that a step further, I mean, you look at the best albums from the bands that we uh, a lot of the other thrash bands and just bands in general that we love. And a lot of times it is that collaboration that that yeah. brings in the element that differentiates that band. It's a, there's a reason that everyone feels like the Marty Friedman era of Megadeth, especially, you know, the Rust in Peace stuff is their strongest stuff. Right. And and um, you look at like uh, the last album that Slayer did where Kerry King basically wrote all the music because obviously Hanneman had passed at that time and he wasn't letting Gary Holt write music for that album. It's not as good. It's just not, you know, that, that sort of singular vision at sometimes you can capture that lightning in a bottle when it is that sort of singular vision. But for bands that have this, for, for bands that have been around for a long time and stuff like that, to me, it's the collaborations that set I think it's when, it's when
1: bands are built on it, isn't it? Because yeah, I mean, to, to take totally. an example, Paradise Lost, you know, everybody knows my favorite band, like that's, Greg McIntosh has always been the sole songwriter. I mean, occasionally, yes, some of the other guys will get credits for bits and pieces and what have you, but basically Greg has written all of the Paradise Lost music forever. That's the fact, that's the band, that's how it works. And so for them, sure, you know, that's, it doesn't really matter, but you're right. When a band is built on this collaboration, when that's how their sound has developed and that's how their sound was originally created, when you lose that collaboration, it can be often very, very difficult to recapture that same kind of magic.
0: Well, and I think it's a testament to testament that they <laughs> that they have been able to stick around and able to... Uh, in many cases, thrive through some of these lineup changes, through the period oh, of time it's, it's that like Skolnick was gone. It's
1: like isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, and, and, you
0: know. uh, there was an interview with uh, Peterson back in 2010, and someone was asking him, like, hey, well, Skolnick's been back with the band since 2005. Has the way you divide guitar duties changed over the years? And he was saying, yeah, they've changed a bit. Alex is still the lead guitarist, but I'm starting to do a little more soloing now. As players, we've all grown a lot. Alex has got a lot of influences, and it really shows in his playing. When you hear his lead, you know it's him. But when Alex left the band, I started taking on more. The other guitar players I jammed with were all like, dude, how come you don't play leads? You're killer. And he said, so that gave, uh, you, you know, he talked about how that really got him to start playing leads. He said, in the past, no one had said to me, play leads. It was just, Alex is the lead guitar player. You're the rhythm guitar player. That's how we're doing it. So when Alex came back, I said, I'm not going to step on your toes. We're not going to fight for solos here. It's just going to add more to it. And he was like, totally, you should totally do that. It was a real breath of fresh air because the old way would have been, well, I'm the lead guitar player. And he's saying, we've all grown up now and it's so much a better band for it. So it sounds like in the early days, those roles were very clearly defined. But when Skolnick came back into the band, there was much more of an open attitude about like, yeah, like add your own solos in there, you know, do your own thing as well. And so well, it's good of, to see that they got to that point. You know,
1: one of the impressions I've always gotten from Skolnick is that he doesn't feel like he's got anything to prove. He knows how good he is. You know, he knows hundred percent. And, that and by that time he had come guitarist. back. And he, he doesn't, if somebody else wants to do a solo and he doesn't, that's fine. You know, he's not going to feel put out by it or threatened by it because he knows he's, you know, one of the best.
0: Totally, dude. And he had done uh, TSO by that point. He had done... Right. Uh, he still does TSO, he, doesn't he? He still does TSO. In fact, I saw him uh, years ago. He had cut his hair. I saw him uh, play for... I almost didn't recognize him except for that shock of white that he has <laughs> yeah, in his yeah. hair. Um, you could notice it even still with his hair cut short. But yeah, I saw him with TSO years and years ago. It was one of the few shows that I could convince my wife to go with uh, with me because it was a holiday-themed show. <laughs> because she's definitely not a metalhead. Um, but... Yeah, and he had the he had the Alex the trio too. He had done all of his jazz exploration um during that time as well. So it sounds like when he did come back to Testament, it was he, he had gotten a chance to sort of spread his wings, which you know, we don't we don't talk about that a ton here on the show, but so many bands, right, where they've been together for a long time and stuff like that. Um, you've seen that very much profiled with Metallica, right? Where they didn't want people going outside the band for their own side projects and stuff like that. Like you need to be focused on what we are and that can be stifling for a lot of people, especially who have a style that goes beyond whatever they're playing in that band.
1: That's exactly the context in which we had that conversation previously. Yeah. Was talking about Metallica's insistence of no side projects and like, okay, well that's fine. But then if you do that, you've got to accept that sooner or later people are going to want to leave. You know they are going to want to do something else, and if you won't let them, they will just leave. Uh so yeah, you know it's uh, you. You've got to decide one way or the other. So the other uh, elements, just to get back to Testament's sound, the other elements I was going to talk about were Greg Christian's bass. Greg Amazing. Christian plays. Greg Christian, he's kind of, and this might get me in trouble with listeners. I don't know, but I always felt that he's kind of like the closest thing to Cliff Burton in another thrash band. He and Cliff both played the same kind of like finger style slightly jazzy you know weren't just playing root notes bass yes Uh, and you can really hear that on this album and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't there are songs here where absolutely that is the right fit there are other songs where i feel "Eh, actually might work better if you had just played root notes greg but that is his style and it's another thing that made testament sound in those early days so unique because of course obviously after. Uh, but you know, by the time of 1988, in fact, by the time this album came out, Cliff was no longer around, so Metallica weren't doing that anymore.
0: Um, well, and you can actually hear the bass on this album, which is freaking <laughs> awesome. Like, it, it is, uh, even as you know, problems with the production aside, you can really hear the bass on this album, which is which in and of itself is a differentiator because for right. so many, you know, it's not just a Metallica thing. There's a lot of bands that you couldn't hear the bass at all in the yeah.
1: uh, Well, and we'll get music. to we'll get to the production in a minute, yeah, because obviously there's <laughs> stuff to talk about there. The other thing, the final thing is uh, Chuck Billy himself and their, well, not just his style, but his lyrics, and actually Peterson's lyrics uh, on some songs as well. One of the things that always set Testament apart for me and it's actually not so present on this album, it's in a couple of songs, but it's mostly in albums from the next album, Practice What You Preach, and then obviously Souls of Lack onwards, is their overt political lyrics. Yeah. Uh, Like, no other band of that era in that scene was really that overt about... Not just, you know, every thrash band sings about how politicians are corrupt and, you know, defy authority and all that sort of stuff, and they're all going to get us killed. Yes, of course, they all sing about that. But Testament sung about real issues, like actual current affairs issues and uh, the environment, which nobody else was really, you know, singing about. And they just always felt to me like a band that were more willing to, to go, yeah, actually, let's let's talk about something that's genuinely relevant to modern life. And maybe that's one of the reasons that they didn't break out along with the production uh, compared to some of those other bands. But, you know, that might have, especially at that time, might have put some people off. But to me, it was always something I really appreciated about them. And I always wondered, actually, how much of that came from the fact that both Peterson and Billy are children of immigrants uh eric peterson is swedish mexican and chuck billy is pomo nation mexican cross um mix what sorry however you want to say it uh and i I always wondered and i don't know this for sure this is speculation but i always wondered if you know growing up in california as the children of immigrants as mixed race children of immigrants whether that had an effect on the sort of stuff that they wanted to make music about because you kind of think how could it not
0: Right. Well, and you write what you know, right? And so, um, yeah, I think it definitely did. And I think not so much in this album, but with Practice What You Preach on Forward, like there was a conscious shift from the sort of, um, you know, traditional uh, metal imagery and traditional metal concepts that would get covered you know all the the supernatural stuff and things like that that you the the horror theme stuff that you would normally find on on many metal albums to the more political stuff as they went forward
1: yeah it's as i say to me it always felt like an absolutely uh essential part of their early sound but part of that is because by the time i got into them uh practice what you preach and souls of black were already out so i got into testament through my friend jay actually uh who i was in a band with at the time one of my first bands He heard them first. He kind of discovered them. And that was, as I recall, it was around the time of souls of black. So about 1990, um, because I'm pretty sure that we were already both by then listening to Testament when return to serenity suddenly became a hit and was all over headbangers ball and and what have you. And obviously that was 92, I think from the album, the ritual. Um, so, and, and Jay was a guitarist and he was a really big fan of Alex Skolnick himself. He, in fact, he, started playing ibanez because of skolnick <laughs> uh and but we were both we were both fans of the band as a whole and the great riffs and as of as is obvious and i've mentioned already i in particular loved chuck billy's voice because to my mind he is He's just the best vocalist from that era of thrash bands. Uh, and I will I will argue about with people about that, you know, as long as they want to. Because n- not only his tone, I mean, he's got a fantastic tone, but his range. He can go from snarl to deep death growl to clean singing melody in the space of a single song. And there was, at that time, again, not now, but at that time, there was nobody else in the early thrash scene who could do that as well as he could and as seemingly effortlessly as he could and he also had a completely unique tone as well you you always know when you're listening to chuck sing uh and that just really you know sort of really stood out for me how did you get for, into them first how did you discover them
0: it was practice what you preach and i think seeing the actual i think there was a video uh yeah, the title track did have a video. Yeah, I just looked that up. So it was the Practice What You Preach video that showed up. And I remember distinctly the cover to that album being the that being the first Testament album that I got. And then I sort of dug into the rest from there. And Souls of Black, actually, if if you asked me off the top of my head, like, what's your favorite Testament album? I would always have said Souls of Black. Uh, I've been really diving deep and kind of going back and, and going through um not just in prep for this episode, but but lately with a lot of bands that I listen to, just kind of re-examining their discography. But Souls of Black was always the one that really clicked with me because it came out in 1990 and I was, I think I was a sophomore in high school at that point in time. So it was like prime time, Yeah, you know, my development as a metalhead and like that just being, you know, that being the album that I bought after I discovered them. Right. Cause you, there's always that album where like you get introduced to a band and then there's like, you're now a fan of that band and the next album they release, like you're ready for, right? Yeah, and you're quite excited often that becomes your like favorite that. album, yeah. And it becomes your favorite album because you're like, oh, the New Testament album's coming out. And so Souls of Black kind of has that soft spot for me, even though it's widely considered like not um, their best album. But Practice What You Preach was the one, and I believe I got it on cassette and I believe I got it through the Columbia House um. You know, subscription oh, service. Oh yeah, you mentioned
1: that before. Yeah, <laughs> that I had. Uh,
0: that was where I first got my first Testament album. But it was, it was practice what you preach, I believe.
1: That's so. I've I hadn't heard that people would not consider Souls of Black to be one of their best albums because I often see it on like you know top one hundred lists and stuff. Uh, and I and this is okay. So this gets into what I talked about earlier about having to choose an album, the new order practice what you preach souls of black and the ritual that's four really fucking great albums in a row now none of them are perfect they all have clunkers and they're all slightly different you know you can see i mean i know there are people who don't like the ritual for example because uh it is kind of more traditional rock you know less of the thrash and more just sort of heavy rock but there are also some fucking great songs on it um i could have chosen any one of those four albums and just as I will say about this album, say that I genuinely love it. You know, again, not perfect, but as an overall that it holds up. Um, so yeah, I'd never actually heard that people would sort of like say Souls of Black is, is not one of their best because, I mean, it's, I don't know, the imagery on it, if nothing else, they've used on loads of other things like that lovely album cover which yes, oh, the okay. album cover it's, it's, is incredible, dude. Right, I mean it's thrash metal, cheesy,
0: of course, but it is so also, like Dark Souls. The album cover,
1: yeah, really, really striking, and they've used that imagery a lot throughout the years um, because it is regarded as one of their classic albums. So, yeah, it's um,
0: you mentioned their, the four thing, and, and I feel like we maybe have talked about this before, but I'm I kind of get obsessed with like the first four albums of bands, and just like what you can tell about that. I feel like there's some parallels to a lot of bands about like those first four albums, especially if they go on to be around for a long time, like what that, what those first four do, how they sort of build the foundation, what what that fourth album is for most bands compared to that first album. Like it's, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. If you picked any one of those four albums, they're all worth a deep discussion. They're all great.
1: honestly i could have talked about low as well but i know because obviously that signaled the departure that for a lot of people <laughs> yeah, was the point. i am
0: not a fan of that album
1: right that's the point at which they lose a lot of people i realize that but i really mm-hmm. like low and demonic as well because it does go heavier it does go more into the death metal side uh but in interesting ways and still with like i say in my opinion some great songwriting but i know that that would be more of an uphill battle not just for you but with listeners as well to convince them that that's the album we should talk about whereas well, with this again you know reasonable people can disagree about which of these four albums to talk about but i don't think anybody's going to say oh no you know you shouldn't talk about the new order because it's not worth it
0: right yeah totally agree and i uh, just i am one of those people who dipped out of testament for a long time after the ritual and and then sort of came back when uh formation of damnation uh came out i definitely missed that middle period of testament because i what i heard i didn't it didn't click with me and i didn't really give it enough of a chance to win me over it was just like oh testament's a very different band now okay uh, moving on <laughs> and then i heard formation of damnation and i was like oh testament's back okay great Back in, now, I can jump back into Testament again. Yeah.
1: I, I think a lot of people felt that way, and I, like I say, I totally get it. I understand why, but I, I personally, Low, Demonic, and The Gathering, I think, are they all have great, great tracks on them. Again, not perfect by any means, but you know, I think anybody who is interested in checking out the more deathy aspects of Testament should definitely give those albums a listen because you may be surprised. at just how damn heavy they got and what's interesting actually about that period is that the record company didn't want them to do that they were urged by was it atlantic they were signed to and i, I can't remember i think so where, yeah i can't remember whether low is the album that got them dropped by atlantic or if they were because they had
0: like a seven album deal i think it was Atlanta, with atlantic yeah. yeah
1: yeah they were either dropped before low or it was low that got them dropped i'm not sure which one it was but either way like you know, record companies, sensible people basically were saying like, no, 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 this is not the way to go. You are not going to sell more records like this. And to their credit, they were like, we don't care. Like, this right. is the this is the direction we want to go in. This is what's interesting us right now. And so this is what we're going to do. And, you know, as I've said many times in this show, I really respect a band that is willing to do that in the full knowledge that they are going to piss people off, but it because it's what they want to do.
0: Especially when they're not in a place success-wise or financially, to be like, it doesn't matter if this doesn't right. sell any albums. So, like, it doesn't, you know, like, we yeah. we don't need to sell any <laughs> more albums because we've sold so many albums that it won't matter to us one way or another. Like, Testaments are never, they they are uh, revered in the halls of metal, but at the same time, they've never been so commercially successful that they didn't have to worry about selling records. No, you absolutely. Know? I mean, they've sold,
1: um, according to Wikipedia, they have sold some, like, 15 million records worldwide. Um
0: which is right up there with which is uh, great. Anthrax, and um, but that's uh, over Anthrax the, is probably a bit higher. But above.
1: that's over the course of 30 years. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you know, or more, 35 years now. So it's, you know, once you sort of parcel it all out, you're like, oh, okay, actually, that's, I mean, that's obviously, that's less than a million, maybe just over half a million per year on average, which is nothing to sniff at, but it ain't going to make you, you know, multi-millionaires right. it who it doesn't never need to work you-
0: it does not put you in a situation where you, from a financial standpoint, can say, "I don't care
1: exactly
0: what if we if this resonates with audiences or not." But from an artist standpoint, you have to freaking appreciate the fact that they did what they felt like they wanted to do and needed to do from a creative standpoint.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's talk about the new order itself. Like I say, nineteen eighty eight, ten songs, and forty minutes.
0: And I don't. Well, know let if- me just set the table by reading Skolnick's, uh piece of this where he says we barely got done with our first couple of tours on that on that first album cycle when we were informed we have to have another album soon we got spooked in a way because we had never we had never had to come up with music on the fly by the time we recorded the album we neglected to look at our recording contract we actually had it in our contract that there's a minimum of 40 minutes of music and we clocked in under that our album was promptly sent back we added the aerosmith tune we added uh those little instrumentals we extended a couple of sections. And that was all done so we wouldn't be in breach of contract. That was from a 2013 Metal Injection uh, interview and I think uh, also posted on Wikipedia. So just to kind of set the table for that, because I think when you know that, there's certain things that you yeah. can't unsee on this album uh, once absolutely. you have that knowledge. Yeah,
1: I, I was going to mention exactly that was the next thing I was going to say. Yeah, because that, as you say, once you know that so much more about this album makes sense. Um, you know, if you imagine the album without that, you base to to do, to imagine the album without that, you've basically got to take out the, uh, in extended instrumental introductions on a couple of tracks and the areas of that track. And you would then wind up with an album that's about 33 minutes long. But as we've said before, you know, look at something like, um, rain in blood, you know, there's nothing wrong with an album that's really short like that, as long as it's tight and powerful. Right. Now, would the album be better for that? I actually don't think it would. I think ironically, having to do that makes a better album. And we'll get Agreed. into that when we talk about the the you know the sort of the album itself and the individual songs. But I actually think that it's a better album for those extra
0: inclusions. I agree with all of that except for the Aerosmith song. Okay. <laughs> which we'll Um, talk about when we get to that uh, particular song in the order but but, yeah
1: and the next thing I wanted to mention is the production itself because this is the other I think and again this is just speculation but I think the other big reason why Testament never broke out was that they never seemed to be able to figure out how to engineer their sound Um, you know know the the more recent album sure but literally right up until it was about low Actually, no, The Ritual, maybe, is probably the first album where you could actually hear what chords they were playing. That's
0: nice. Well, dude, if you're talking about their more recent albums, I've got two words for you, Andy Sneap. Right, and that, yes. that, is the, that is, to me, the big difference maker for them. But what's wild is that you mentioned the production. Now, Alex Perialis was the guy who did, I think he did the mixing, mastering, and engin- producing, mastering, engineering on this particular one. Let me just make sure that I'm right about that. He did producer, engineer, mixer on this one, right? If you look at that dude's resume... Between 1983 and 2015, I'm going to tell you the albums that this guy was an engineer, mixer, or producer on, okay? He mastered Kill Em All. He was the assistant engineer on Fistful of Metal. He worked with Raven, Exciter, Overkill, SOD, Nuclear Assault, MOD, Carnivore, uh, Agnostic Front, uh, Just a ridiculous amount of bands. Other albums that he was the engineer on Armed and Dangerous from Anthrax. Engineer on Field of Fire from Overkill. uh, Engineer on uh, Spreading the Disease. Producer on Nuclear Assault's Brain Death EP. uh, Obviously worked on The Legacy... Worked with Testament quite a quite a bit. Nuclear Assault's Game Over was the producer and engineer. Agnostic Fronts, Liberty and Justice for, the engineer on. Overkill, Under the Influence, producer and engineer on. This dude worked with freaking everybody. I'm I'm shocked that I didn't know more about him because he worked on so many. So it kind of blows me away to see the production issues that this album and, and Early but Testament in donked, general has. Yeah
1: just because absolutely dogged their early career. I, I, This is why I have to figure that it's not just him. You know, it's not just... Right, you dude. You can't put it on just one producer. There was something about the way they recorded, the way, that, I don't know, the way Peterson wanted to set up his amps or whatever
0: that just... I don't know, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but this guy worked with freaking everybody on albums that we would hold up as... Uh, I mean, spreading the disease. Yeah, I think that freaking, sound great? Yeah. yeah, dude. So, like, it kind of blows me away. But, but it absolutely is. Uh, you can't listen to early testament without thinking about that. I mean, it's it, it, to make so many of Alex's solos. It sounds like he's recording from two rooms away. <laughs> yeah, like, it really does. It <laughs> well, sounds like someone is, has a microphone at the other end of the hallway, and he's playing like in the back bedroom. Yeah. The solo and it, and Eric's I mean,
1: riffs sound like he's, you know, recording them in a garage or next yeah, door or yes, next door's garage. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, which
0: I mean, what a testament to the music again, what a testament to Testament's music that it's still so powerful. Yes, right, when the but, well, production does everything it can do to almost take the edge off, except for I think the bass.
1: Well, actually, right, but here's the thing I think. I mean, I do think it's a shame that the production on the early albums is so bad, or the sound, I should say, is is so poor. Because I really think that that is, as I say, one of the things that held them back. By the time they figured it out on the ritual, everybody was already into grunge, and Testament was seen as yeah. an old school trad they were metal like, band. Guys, guys, we got
0: it. It Hold was too on. late.
1: Yeah, it was too late. But I actually think that the one thing you do get from this sound is that feeling of energy and that rawness. And it does have an edge. It doesn't take away from the edge. I think it adds to it because it really does sound like you're stood in somebody's garage listening yeah. to them rehearse. And that's actually really powerful, I think.
0: Oh, no doubt. But I think that has more to do with the music than because I, I Oh sure. Yeah. The, uh, I, am I get what you're saying from the unpolished aspect of it. Cause I do like the unpolished nature of so many early thrash albums that it does feel like they're all sitting in a garage recording together and stuff like that and um so i do agree with that piece of it but the the, it's hard to listen to some of these early albums and feel like they weren't handcuffed by production and what that could have sounded like yeah had it been a more robust production
1: i'll tell you what was even harder trying to fucking work out how to play them jesus (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> literally i remember sitting there listening going like what chord is that what are they playing i can't tell what the right chords are.
0: nowadays you have youtube where they do where they spend 12 hours putting together every individual note and someone does you know well, we, had to, of it we had like to that. go out
1: and buy the books we had to go out and buy which books. were often
0: like so off
1: right yeah because people
0: were, were doing the same thing that you were yep. trying to do which is piece it together and they're like i think <laughs> i mean even today tab books are t- awful but uh but yeah, like it, them trying to do the same thing that you were doing, put it together, except getting paid to do that, and often were a lot of inaccuracies well, you hope that they that had a stuff. lot
1: more, you know, sort of skill and ability playing the guitar than we did, because God knows I've never had a, a great deal, you know. And I do, I do remember that uh, my friend Jay is that he went out and bought several uh, Testament tab books, and you know, you'd hope they were written by professionals, but as you say, they were not written by the bands. It's not like they're officially sanctioned or anything, so right yeah it's uh it was really tough trying to (laughs) figure out how to play along some of these tracks but we did it anyway because we loved them so on that note why don't we start talking about the actual songs let's do it all right so track one opening of the album eerie inhabitants
0: I kind of love this as the opening track because it gives me the vibe of the album cover. And for whatever reason, the album cover reminds me of that crappy... cosmic vampire movie life force from toby hooper from the 80s you remember that the naked <laughs> yeah. vampire lady um for some reason i think it's maybe the way the life force like exits people's bodies and stuff and in the way that the skull is sort of drawn on that front cover but it just it always makes me think of life force every time i think of that um cover but this this sort of cosmic you know atmospheric sort of opening to me does and maybe the title plays into that too with eerie inhabitants it does uh feel like it captures the vibe of what i would expect when i look at the cover of that yeah. album
1: well and you've got the you know the sort of semi-cheesy by now traditional acoustic thrash intro for know. sure but you've got yep. thunder sound effects in the background <laughs> as well which adds to both the cheese and the the eerie feel um and then of course you know you've got alex's lovely solo Coming in and whittling. Oh, so good, dude. Like
0: was. that circular, you know, vibe yeah. to it. Yeah, totally awesome.
1: But here, like the riffage begins, and here is what I love about this track is that it is not their best song. But what no. it is, is a quintessential testament song with almost every aspect of a testament song right here in one yep. little package. So you've got an intensely rhythmic riff. You've got timing changes between the verse and the chorus. You've got Chuck Billy spitting lyrics out at 10 to the dozen, but also singing sustained notes. You've got political lyrics. You've got a catchy chorus with crowd shouting in the background. And the middle eight features Alex Skolnick fret wanking all over the place at top speed. And then it finishes with an intense rerun of the chorus and a big rhythmic full stop. That like I say it's not their best song although it it's is, the
0: blueprint it's, though
1: right it is a great song and it's a belter of an album opener I do really like it
0: but if agreed
1: if you had never heard early testament and you just said to me hey what what does early Testament sound like I, I would play you this song I'd say everything about early Testament is here in these four minutes
0: you're right so it works perfectly as an intro to this album but also as a blueprint for classic Testament.
1: It really is, yeah, yeah. You could. I feel like, as you say, blueprints are exactly the right word for it because you could take this song and find elements from every other Testament song in here from the first few albums. Anyway, it's uh, it really is, and quite it also remarkable.
0: It answers the question: What makes them different? Yes. Well, how how is Testament different from all these other bands? Well, just listen to this. I mean, it is that it's that collaborative, Skolnick and Peterson. Uh, it, it's the way that um, you know that Chuck delivers the vocals. It is, it's all of that. It's got a, it's got a thick bassline in it. Like it's, it, it's all there. And then as you mentioned, like the blistering solo. So all of those things, and then it ends with like the clean singing where he's singing, Whoa, at the, at the end of that, like, uh, it's got all of that stuff yeah. and it, it really is a great intro and it starts off with that very sort of atmospheric, you know, kind of beginning. So all in all, a great opening track, even though it's not, you know, the strongest track in the album.
1: Right. But it really does set you up for the album to come. And I mean, you've even got the other thing in this is that, uh, you've got trademark Chuck Billy melodies, vocal melodies as well. Yes. Absolutely. One of the things that he does really well is semitone lines and then sort of yell or not yell. Sorry. How can I put it? Sort of bellow the final word of a line in a really atonal fashion but it's really distinctive to him. And again, this is one of the things where you you kind of, you hear it and you go, oh, that's Chuck Billy. How could it be anybody else? Nobody else does it like he does. So yeah, it's, it really does. We talk about this all the time. This track really sets you up for the rest of the album. You know, if you like this, you're going to love what comes next. So what does come next? Track two, The New Order.
0: Dude, just a freaking absolutely killer song. I just love, absolutely love this song. Um, again, I feel like a lot of what we just said about the first song in terms of having all the, the markings of a classic Testament tune, the the time changes, the, the way that Testament locks into a groove, locks into that main sort of rhythm riff. I, I just... I feel like they do that, they're one of the best at that, of like locking in, of like, you know, you've got all this stuff sort of swirling around to begin a song, and then when it, bam, when it just locks into that main riff, like, they do that so well. It's like all the ingredients come together, and it just clicks, and this is such a perfect example of that for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a credit to Louis Clemente. Like, like I said, like Clementi is not—you know—he's not the fastest drummer in the world. He's not the most sort of virtuosic drummer in the world. But the way he plays and the way he locks into rhythms, as you say, just works really, really well. And he is so in sync with not just Greg Christian on the bass, but with Peterson's rhythmic playing as well.
0: Um, And dude, the intro, just like the freaking single notes and stuff, like so good. This is the one uh, that Skolnick did the instructional video on, and just even watching him play that now.
1: Oh I haven't, seen, I haven't seen that. I'll have to uh...
0: Um It's the one where he I was mentioning earlier where he talks about like the the different styles, oh, you know, what yeah, he yeah. brings and what Peterson brings in, he, but he's doing kind of a playthrough of this song. And he sort of starts with that and just watching him play the intro to the song, it's like that's so freaking awesome, man. It's like that's a that's a big differentiator for me, is what he brings and then Peterson's riffs. And those two things together are just when, when they're on they're riff, on
1: yeah that main riff is a real corker i mean you've got yeah oh, it's of, brutal. sort of changing time signatures in the intro again but that main riff as you say when it locks in just <sighs> absolutely rocks but for me the main attraction on this song is the chorus uh because it is double time it's one of the few you know times that you do get double time drumming in this it is heavy as hell yep and you know chuck is just absolutely majestic on this chorus um i i love it and i also love the uh the the end of the song not because it ends but but the way that they do the end it ends on that extended he from dude
0: i freaking love that yes that that's another thing that he just does so well and like you were saying before like what where he decides to put the emphasis or or like you know carry out a note or something like that like it's just this song is just damn near perfect yeah, from well, start to finish. But
1: part of the reason why I love that, I like extensions like that anyway, because what they do is they catch you out. Like, you've yep. already heard him do that a couple of times in the chorus, so you think you know what's coming, but then they extend it so it's different, and it just sort of makes you go, oh, you know, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but also because when he shouts, yeah, and there's a guitar chord underneath it, and that's literally the end of the song. Yep, uh, And that's unusual, it's unusual for Testament, but it's unusual for any of the early thrash bands because there was so much emphasis on riffs and circular song composition and you know emphasizing the guitars that yeah it was just really unusual you know most songs most other bands of that time would after that have at least another 12 bars of riffs to end the song you know um but this is what comes of having a singer who can stand toe to toe with like anybody else is you can put the song on their shoulders. Uh, totally. And, and end a song like this, and it doesn't feel unsatisfying. And I think that's, you know, again, a testament to <laughs> a testament. We're going to saying that. And that is such <laughs> a great
0: point, dude, because so many bands don't have a singer that they can do that with. Exactly. And, and that is such a, a, it just gives them more options as a band. Uh, it gives them more ways to differentiate, more ways to, to, um, to sort of stand out. And if you were making a playlist of like, to me, this is what classic eighties thrash is. Like if I was making a playlist of like just a, a, amazing eighties thrash metal songs, like boom, the new order. Yeah. That it's, is, it's just well, such a great it's, song.
1: It's gotta be in there, but I think so has the next track. So let's talk about that. That's track three trial by fire.
0: I mean, no one's going to kick this song off that list either.
1: (laughs) Right. It's, I mean, this is one of the, uh, well, this is one of the padding pieces, like this intro, the intro to the song has nothing to do with the rest of the song. Totally. Uh, And
0: you can see it, right? Like once you know that they had to add (laughs) stuff in order to, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost a minute long and then the song itself has
1: another 40 seconds of instrumental intro, you know? So it's obviously one of the tacked on bits, but. It works. It's good. It's a happy accident because it acts as a kind of palate cleanser between the riffs because these these first few songs especially are so riff-heavy, they are so focused on those great rhythmic riffs that putting them up against one another with no pacing or breather I think actually would be a detriment. Whereas here, you've, you can take a break, you can take a breather you've got this like little nice melodic break in between, and then it's back to the heaviness.
0: Oh dude, a hundred percent. And it gives, it it, it, again gives more, this album would be less for, for not having those instrumentals because it also gives you more of both influences, right? This would be more Peterson and less Skolnick if you eliminated all of those things. And so just having that, just, it, it feels more collaborative to me as a, A better representation of both of their styles, I think, which to me is their greatest strength around that kind of stuff. And so, uh, but also this song, Killer Bassline.
1: You would get to hear Greg do his thing in that, uh, in the intro, with his rolling bass, yeah.
0: Freaking love it. And then the acceleration and deceleration, right? Like, they, they just play with that stuff so well. Like, this is a band that just uses... What they emphasize and what they choose not to emphasize, like those choices, whether they're vocally, whether they're, um, you know, music, like from an instrumental standpoint are just their ratio of like hits to misses is so positive. I just, I love their choices that they make. And this is another one where just the, the sort of dun, 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 like that whole is, it just adds a whole nother element to the song.
1: Yeah, it's just, it is a really well-written song. This is, again, what I said about song composition. They are really good at it. And this, it's just the riffs, the the rhythms, as you said, like the acceleration, deceleration, Chuck's vocal rhythms, both in the verse and the chorus, mesh with the music so well. Um, I don't know if this is a song that they still play live a lot, but it should be, I hope so, because this is an absolute classic. This is... Again, not quite well, my favorite track on the album, but it is absolutely up there. This is one of the top three on this album, for sure.
0: The last time I saw them in concert, and I can't believe it's been this long, I think was in 2010, and they played Trial by Fire. They, had, they only played eight songs. They were the opening band. They played with Megadeth and Slayer. And um, it was the tour where Megadeth was playing Rust in Peace, I believe, in its entirety, and Slayer was playing Seasons in the Abyss in its entirety. And um, they played uh, The New Order and Trial by Fire. At that particular nice. one. So, yeah. It's a decade, decade old information, but uh, they were absolutely <laughs> playing that song live still.
1: I, I'm glad because, like I say, it's such a well written song and obviously works well live. I mean, you can just, even if you've never seen them live, you can imagine that this is going to be a cracking
0: well, song live. And just imagine the build to, hey, exactly. like that, bam, like just the, and that's that whole emphasis thing again. Like they're so good at that. And, um, those payoffs are so, you know, throw your fist in the air. It's just, uh... Even the middle
1: eight in this song. Like, the middle eight riff could be the base of a whole new 100% song. 100%. Which is yes. not something you can say about a lot of middle eight riffs, let's be honest. <laughs> but this no. one, you absolutely could.
0: And the fact that they have enough riffs that are killer that they can afford to do that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and be like, yeah, let's just use that for the middle eight here, you know, uh, which, uh... Is crazy, But yeah, I mean, so you're talking about one, two, three. Uh, th- 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 these are three killer tracks off, off this album so far. Oh like, yeah. Boom, yeah. boom, and, boom. Well, right and, in your face. And it does
1: not stop there because track four is Into the Pit.
0: This is one of my favourite songs ever from Testament. I, well,
1: and I know they play this one live still a lot. Uh, and, you know, is anybody surprised? Because it's, it's a classic. It's an absolutely classic. It's probably the fastest drumming that Clemente's ever done on a Testament song, I reckon. I was listening to it thinking, like, I don't think he ever played this fast on any other song.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's got a razor blade riff. The anthemic Into the Pit is so... Again, if I'm making a playlist of classic '80s thrash songs, like here you go, dude, into the pit.
1: Yeah, well, and ending the way the chorus ends. So you've got that, yeah, that into the pit. Lovely rhythmic, you know, refrain on each line of the chorus. But then the very last one, they change it. He almost throws it away, like into the pit. Uh, Yeah, yeah. and And the guitars are different as well. You've got the instead, you've got the ringing sort of like epic guitar chords that go out back into the chorus what an unusual way to do it you know you'd think most choruses would be the other way around where you'd have the ringing epic bit as the main bit of the chorus and then you'd end on the hard rhythmic stuff and they just completely swap it around and it works it's brilliant
0: yep another absolutely shredding solo um the fact that this song is only two minutes and 46 seconds long yeah (laughs) I mean, well, it's, it's, there's no, there's no fat on this song.
1: It, it's the sort, it's the shortest song on the album, apart from the, the actual instrumental track, which comes right. next. Um, but yeah, it's the shortest song with lyrics for sure. Um, and that's because everybody's playing at breakneck Speed, not just Clemente, like the drums, the riffs, the bass, the solo, even the way that Chuck delivers the lyrics, everything is just at absolute a hundred miles an hour. Uh, and yeah, again getting back to that songwriting and the taste and the decisions and the choices, as you say that they make, you know, you can, you can imagine there will be some bands who would do that, but then they would have like a three minute guitar fucking break in the middle or something just to make it a five minute song. But they're like, no, no, this is, you know, this is a, a less than three minute song played at breakneck speed. And that's all it needs to be. And that's what will give it the most impact. And it absolutely does.
0: Yes, Dude. And through these first four songs, the word versatility, just mm. comes through, right? Because you think about, and someone mentioned this about Death Clock, right? About, about being homogenous. Like, how many thrash records, how many thrash bands uh, just don't feel like they ha- they feel like they're, they're, a, they do that one thing really well. And Testament just feels like they, they're playing with a bigger tool set, you know, they're, they've got more. They've got more options. They've got more choices to make on every song. And they can show you what do you want from I mean, this is without even talking about like their whole like death metal uh y- you know later albums and well, stuff all like their that. their ability but even
1: here. Ballads.
0: Yeah, even here, dude, on their second album. It's like, what do you want to we can do anything, you know? And you get that through these first four songs. You just want a straight ahead three minute thrash song, boom, in your face. You want to hear um You want to hear some melody in there? Boom, we've got this. You want to you want to build in more of the classical elements? Bam, we've got this. You want something that's more drum and bass driven? Bam, we've got that. It's like they can just. It just reminds me of like a veteran quarterback who can step up to the line and like audible into whatever whatever the defense is given that whatever the the situation demands. I feel like Testament just has like so many options that they can present you, and you get that through these first four songs.
1: Testament, the Peyton Manning of thrash metal.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you didn't say Tom Brady or we would have had a fight there. So, um, <laughs> Well, it, no, I was going to say
1: either that or uh, Joe Montana.
0: I would say, yeah, let's let's call them the Joe Montana. Right. Depends uh, on your of, generation. Of thrash metal, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it does feel like that. It feels like they, they and again, on their second album, yeah. have such command of all of these elements that putting these songs together are just... It's like a masterclass. Yeah, oh, it's in, just,
1: in, it's one more thing that you know makes me sad that they never broke out that they in quite the way that the other uh, you know early Bay Area thrash bands did.
0: Right, yeah, agreed.
1: All right, so moving on to track five, Hypnosis. And this is the first proper instrumental track
0: yeah um i have two problems number one is this one i th- i think doesn't differentiate itself enough from sort of what we've heard so far in terms of the the sort of instrumental pieces this far into the up this is where i think it really starts to show that they're putting some filler in to you know extent like if none of the other songs had those extensions then this would feel a little bit different. And I think Disciples of the Watch suffers from that too, because it feels like it's just, this is just a, a you know, you get a minute intro to that song, and this song feels like another two-minute intro to the one-minute intro that you're going to get to the next song. It just right. it, Although this was just the end of side
1: one. Remember this was back in the era when everything was on vinyl or tapes, and this was the end of side one. so
0: right. And so it could feel like as you flip the record over or flip the tape over, you're sort of continuing what how the first you know ended from from song five to six. but I just I feel like with what we've gotten so far, this instrumental is not strong enough or um, unique enough to feel like it fits with those first four songs.
1: I'd go along with that. It doesn't do anything that we haven't heard already before on the album, I think, which, you know... Not that
0: I don't want an instrumental, because I I could listen to, you know, this all day. I could listen to a whole album of just instrumentals from these guys, but I just don't feel like... The first four songs we've gotten are just crushers. So if you're going to do an instrumental here, like, it it should really stand out. And that's where I feel like, you know... Even though I don't think Hammett's guitar playing is anywhere near, you know, like a Skolnick. At the same time, I feel like some of Metallica's instrumentals were better executed. Oh, for sure, yeah. Like something like this, you yeah, know what yeah. I
1: mean? I, I, the, one of the things that Metallica did better than any of the other thrash bands early on was write fantastically composed instrumentals, and I don't like think they anybody, told the story. Yeah, exactly. I don't think anybody came even close to them uh, on that that score. Um, And this certainly doesn't. On the other hand, you can see an argument for this again being a kind of a break, you know, a bit of pacing, because we have had four absolutely blistering tracks. Like, you know, this first side, really, or the first four tracks of this uh, first side, are just like, you know, I'm not going to say they're faultless, but really absolutely every song you're just going like that's great yeah that's great oh my god and that's great as well um so but they're also all really really heavy so as like i say you can kind of see an argument for using this as again a palate cleanser you know as, as yeah. a bit of a pacing break but i agree that it's not it's not the best composition it could even for something that's only a couple of minutes long it could be more interesting
0: Well, especially for these two, you know, like the bar is high. Yeah. So, um, but, but it also brings in like the thunder. So like, if there is a theme to the atmosphere of this album, it's kind of like reminding you of like, we're still in this space. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it does work in maybe thematically, but just, um, you just know that these two are capable of more, Yeah. you know?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. (laughs)
0: <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I'm not like super disappointed. I'm just like, yeah, I mean, come on. That's like a that's like a C plus B effort. When you know we're talking about A plus. Here. We know
1: you're capable of A star. Like,
0: yeah, right, yeah. Uh, to- totally.
1: All right. Well, then let's let's flip the record over and go to track six. Disciples of the Watch.
0: A good, solid five minute opener, even though we get a, a minute of sort of build up in this particular song, but even as a four minute song, I think is, is, uh, this is another song like when, when this band locks into the groove, it's just chef's kiss, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean, I like how this comes back in with something that is almost like hypnosis, almost like right. the instrumental, that we just said, not quite, but you know, enough to make it feel like a continuation, even if it is another minute of padding that has no connection. Yeah, it's like that cosmic atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I, I suspect then it sounds like I like this song a hell of a lot more than you because to me this is a real barnstormer to open the second side. It's got that classic Testament riff, Greg's bass like comes to the fore in the middle eight. Oh, the
0: bass line is incredible. No, I do definitely like the song yeah, for Al- sure.
1: Alex's solo, even you know, and you know, I'm not a huge sort of like you know uh, aficionado of solos, but it is a lovely solo in this that uh, you know. And then
0: the riff after the solo, and it only lasts like five seconds, but is killer yeah, too.
1: Absolutely. But much as I said, like like I said, Eerie Inhabitants is what I would play somebody to demonstrate what Testament sounds like. In the same kind of way, this is the song that I personally think of whenever I think of testament like if I just if I'm not actually listening to a testament record and you know somebody mentions the band this is the song I will think of more than practice what you preach more than souls are black more than any other song um for several reasons one of which is just that I love it I love the uh the rhythm of the chorus and the rhythm of the you know of everything I think it's a great rhythmic song it's very catchy it's you know a good sing-along. Uh, even if you really want to sing to like, you know, somebody shouting, I'll burn you to that cross, but but you can do that. Um, yes, totally. But here's a couple couple of things that show you how much I love this song. So first of all, you know, but many of our listeners may not. I wrote a very long post-apocalyptic comic series called Wasteland for eight years, 60 issues. In that story was a quasi medieval city. And in that city, the guardsmen were called the disciples of the watch. And that is entirely down to just how much I love this song because it, it just felt like a really good fit. And there, there are actually loads of musical references in Wasteland, but most of them are far more obscure than this and nobody's ever noticed them, you know, but I know they're there. But that is why they're called the Disciples of the Watch in that comic. Is because That's a good deep of, cut. Of song, yeah. um, and second, and I remember very, very clearly sitting in Jay's bedroom, listening to this album, and we both kind of puzzled over it. Bear in mind, we're in England. Neither of us had ever been to the States. We don't have that much exposure to American music other than, you know, the heavy metal that's coming over at that time. Uh, Or obviously, you know, things like Elvis or whatever, but in terms of metal. Um, This was the first time that we had heard an American singer suddenly adopt an English accent when doing death growls. Because that's what Chuck does when he sings burn you to that cross. He sings burn you to that cross, not crass. Like an American yeah. would. Now, we, you know, that sort of pronunciation is kind of standard with death growls now. But at the time, that baffled the hell out of us. And we were like, why? Why is he doing that? <laughs> it was just so weird because we're used to you know a lot of british bands in all genres singing an american accent but there are also some british bands like say depeche mode or the sisters of mercy who don't who sing in an english accent you know And and then there are some like nick holmes in paradise lost who kind of mixes the two has a weird sort of mid transatlantic accent when he sings but yeah this was the first time we'd ever heard an american singer suddenly adopt an english accent We like, why it's weird but it, it also made it stand out and i think maybe that's why it got stuck in my head and i just came to really really love this song and this is actually my favorite song on the album just i don't know because it's my favorite testament song it's the one that i think of whenever i think of testament
0: and inspired by children of the corn which i've never seen really
1: <laughs> no never seen it
0: I mean, it's not amazing. It's, it's, uh, it's worth a Saturday matinee if you get a chance to uh, I'm
1: to not surprised that you've seen it at all, no. <laughs>
0: um,
1: Much more the horror aficionado than me.
0: Yeah, no, I like this song as an opener to the second side. I wouldn't say it's my favourite song on the album, but absolutely a killer song. I think this is a good example of where the extended intro hurts the song. If you if you chop that off, I think this is just my personal opinion, but I think the song would be better off for it. So the feeling that I get from the song is that it actually gets better as it goes along,
1: right? Yeah, no, as I, opposed
0: to and kind of has to overcome a ho hum intro. Even though thematically, you know, it it connects back to the first side of the album. So, but 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 I feel like the core song is awesome.
1: Yeah. As you said, we already had like two minute instrumental at the end of that one. I think because it's, because I still think of it as the first song on side two, I forgive that musical intro a little bit more because that's just, that's always, even in this day and age, you know, because I'm an old fart, that's how I still think of this song as, oh, this is the first song on side two. So you flip it over, you've had a break. Now you get a little intro to it, you know, to start off the side, which a lot of metal albums did at that time. You know, look at the Halloween albums we did. They they started and end every side with a little guitar instrumental bit. Um, You know, that was, for a while, that was just the way it was done.
0: Yeah, and uh, just one last thing on that. I think when you have guitar players like these two, you can put in as many instrumental <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> yeah. extensions or you know uh, straight- up instrumentals as you want to. And again, it's what I think the quality of it makes them stand out more, you know.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. All right, so let's move on to then to track seven, the preacher. Or should that be the preacher
0: <laughs> I freaking love that dude I love the manic uh, sort of uh you know high strung energy of this song it feels very anthrax to me like the 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 first sort of 15 seconds of the song just feels very anthrax to me like early anthrax I I love it I love the sort of manic nature of uh of Chuck's you know singing here and to me like the best finish of a song on the album i think uh but but yeah just the the way he's doing like spoken words in some parts and stuff like that i just i think i probably feel about the preacher like you feel about disciples of the watch i just like it just hits me
1: oh wow i mean i i love the intro yeah the intro is so unusual with those guitar lead Bits and yeah, Chuck in the preacher. It's kind of like, oh shit, okay, strap in, here we go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, totally, dude. But it is such an odd song because it doesn't have a chorus. uh I I must admit, I've never known. I mean, this doesn't make it good or bad. I've never, but I've never known if they're actually singing about like a real historical person or if this is just a fictional thing. Um, but then you've got those weird stop-start rhythms that take over in the middle eight. It's kind of, it's not bad. But I, I always feel like this one could have used another pass. You know, it's just a little bit. Maybe it just doesn't messy. find
0: that groove that so many of their other songs.
1: For me, yeah, you yeah. know,
0: have. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned like because it does, and maybe it just clicks with me because they are telling a story here. Even though, as you said, like it's hard to determine whether or not it's of a figure that is based on reality. Um, but. Yeah, there's something about the song. I think it's just the energy of the song that really hits me here. And then towards the end, you know, listen to these words I preach, catastrophic lessons they shall teach. Uh, I just I just love the way it hits.
1: It absolutely does have the energy. You're, you're right but That's what I say. When it starts off and Chuck shouts, you know, yells the preacher, it is kind of like, oh, here we go. You know, this is going to be a ride. <laughs> and it really is. <laughs> uh, and again, you know, him singing Ten to the Dozen and stuff really helps with that. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. For me, it feels like it's not quite fully baked. You know, you just could have used, like I say, could have used a bit more work.
0: But at three minutes and 37 seconds, a song that does not overstay, right. it's welcome. No. And no. so if it's not one of the, the bangers for you on this album, then it's, it's over pretty quickly.
1: No, well, and that's, you know, that's, as we've said with other cases, other albums where that's the case, that is the advantage of being a band that doesn't do seven or eight minute songs is if you do something that might maybe isn't your best it's okay because the, it's over and then there's another one soon enough
0: right and if you look at the songs that have those sort of artificial intros that were added later on i mean most of these songs are not clocking in more than like four minutes long
1: right exactly yeah yeah which by early thrash metal standards is relatively It's pretty short. long yeah <laughs> no relatively short i would have said
0: I always think of a classic, you know, and maybe that's just because I'm more of a, of a hair metal rock and roll guy, but three and a half minutes to me feels like average song, you uh, know, I size. Suppose, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, So anything over that feels, anything over four minutes to me feels like it's getting a little bit long, uh, sort of in the tooth, but that may be the hair metal guy in me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Whereas to me, like any thrash metal song that clocks in at under six minutes, I, I think I feel like is a short song. <laughs>
0: That's true, but some of your favourite songs are 35 minutes long, well, so... Well, yes, <laughs> there is that. So, so this feels like the opening sentence to some of the songs that you listen to. <laughs>
1: uh, well, and, and the next song on this one is now that Aerosmith cover, uh, track 8, Nobody's Fault.
0: me the the misstep of this entire album like i now i get that and i didn't know until i read um up on this album that that it was a situation where they had it had gotten returned to them because it wasn't long enough and they had to artificially sort of make the album longer i can forgive this song more now because of that but uh a i'm part of part of the problem is i'm not an aerosmith fan like at all and so This doesn't do anything for me. And then also, you know, in terms of your rules for cover songs, which I'm very interested to hear if they meet your expectations in terms of cover songs, like it didn't do anything for me. Like what they're doing with this song doesn't do anything for me. And so to me, it just doesn't match up well with anything else on this album. So, yeah, I'm just not a fan of this one.
1: So, I mean, yes, that's the main thing is that it really doesn't match anything else on the record the funny thing is that i had no idea this was a cover for years i have never heard the aerosmith version of this song Uh, i've never really felt compelled to seek it out and i didn't even know it was an aerosmith song for the longest time but it did it makes sense once i found out it was i was like oh that's why it is so different to the rest of the album um, it always felt to me like a B-side, like something left over from the writing oh. sessions that they had to drag out when they found themselves a song short. Do you know what I mean?
0: Not just a B-side, but this to me sounds like a B-side on Stomp 442. Oh! Th- this feels like... <laughs> you wound me. <laughs> no, 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 but like I listened to the song, like this feels like John Bush should be singing singing a song and it would be better for it. I This this feels oh, okay. to me yeah. Like, yeah. A, well, that chorus, like a John yeah. Bush era yeah. Anthrax song that would have been a B-side on Stomp 442. But Bush would this, kill
1: that chorus, wouldn't he? Yeah.
0: yeah, that's what I'm saying. And so I can literally hear like the the Armored Saint Bush-era Anthrax you know, vibe to this song that, to me, just doesn't fit Chuck and doesn't fit the music that is on this album. So it's it, nothing against cover songs. Like, the, there's a bunch of—I mean, f- granted, Megadeth put freaking These Boots Are Made For Walking on <laughs> um, Killing Is My Business, which is <laughs> gu- awful— just absolutely awful um one of the other things this
1: song does do though is it gives chuck a chance to show off just how fast he can sing while staying in perfect time and without taking a breath which is another thing that he does better than many many other singers um right if you listen to they do the haunting on return to the apocalyptic city live there's a, uh, I think it's you know one of the bonus tracks on that, and it's just incredible. Like he gets through practically the entire first verse without taking a breath. And You're like, how? How do you do that? <laughs> He's like a proto Dave Drayman or something,
0: <laughs> right? And and so like if you needed further proof of you know chuck billy's talents then sure this is not uh you know a, a bad song for that it, it, and again as a song like it's okay i think the fact that i'm not an aerosmith fan makes it even worse for me yeah. in this scenario it's not like it's terrible no exactly um, it's not
1: awful but it's just like you listen to it and you're like why is this here
0: yeah and and again like a now this we know. to me would have been like a secret track on the album right if you go 10 minutes past the last song then you then you hear this or something like that so uh yeah, but understanding why it's here, like it's more forgivable to me now.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, now we know why it's here, and we finally get that question answered.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Uh, all right, so moving on to track nine A Day of Reckoning.
0: Now we're talking. Now, now we're back. We're back here. Um, you got the catchiness you've got, uh, to me, a very, my note here was a very testament riff to open the song. Um, I feel like he's singing more on this song, like as opposed to the, the usual, you know, um, there's more singing, less shouting to me on, on this particular song.
1: There is, I actually don't like this song. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised that, uh if anything, I think I, this is, uh, you know, the cover, the Aerosmith cover aside, which was just a weird decision. Uh, although, you know, as we said, now understandable. I just think this doesn't belong on the album. I don't think it lives up to the quality of the rest of the album. Uh, it is, it, it commits, and this is, you're right about Chuck singing more, but that's the problem. That's part of the problem with it, is it commits the cardinal sin of being a song where it is easier to sing along to the verse than to the chorus. And that just, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there are probably songs where maybe that works, but in this case, I really don't think it does. And the music never seems to take off. It's, there's loads of chugging, very little actual song for me. Um, it's, it just never quite seems to lock in, as we've said before, to any kind of, oh yeah, you know, this is the good bit. It's always like it's building up, but it never quite gets there. So I'm afraid for me, this is the low point of the album.
0: I feel like it ends on a higher note though because it has sort of this like maddening manic riff toward the end in in almost like this panic inducing thing. There's a weirdness to this song that I kind of like a like a like an instability to it that I kind of dig. Um even though it's probably not you know one of my favorite songs on the album, but I do I do like it. I definitely felt like it was a good rebound from the cover song that they just did. Like it, it put us back into the groove. And actually I probably would have put this song at number 10, um, as opposed to what we end up getting instead. Um, but yeah, but I I think it's a good solid rebound from, from number eight. Uh, it's, I don't like it as much as the preacher, but I do like it.
1: All right. Well, let's, let's move on to track 10 then. And that's musical death, a dirge.
0: Well speaking of musical death, uh it feels a little megadethy to me, which you know that I'm a big fan <laughs> of. Um I, I like sort of the peaks and valleys of this song. Um it feels again like they're this to me feels a little bit more connective and and feels like it has a more of a theme to it than the song that ended the first side. Yeah. Uh Hypnosis was it? Yeah. Uh I I've, Well it's twice the length. Yeah, well, and I feel like it's a it's just a better song to me. So I almost mm-hmm. feel like this, this is a better example of what they tried to do on the end of the first side. Um, my my only problems with this song is that I feel like it just kind of peters out at the end. Like it doesn't it doesn't end on a yeah powerful note to me. And because of that, I don't know that I would have put it at the 10 spot. I almost would have put it at the nine spot and put uh, a day of reckoning um, at number 10.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I can see that. Um, it's, you're right, it does kind of peter out. And that's, that's my one big issue with this track is it like, it's really well composed and it's atmospheric. And you're right, it's yep, better agreed. than Hypnosis. It has, you know, more time to be composed. Uh, you know, it, it does more of a telling a story, but then, like 30 seconds from the end, you've suddenly got this bit where it revs up and it goes electrified yes, and it starts riffing, and you think, oh, here we go. It's going to like, it's going to do a fade to black, but no, it lasts for four bars yes. and then immediately stops. You're like,
0: no, you, you nailed it. You just nailed it, dude. I put that note in here too, that one part where we get heavy, you, not only do you expect more, but you want more. You yeah, want like, absolutely. it feels like we've built to that point and now it's going to kick in and it's going to be amazing. And nope, nope, that was it. It was that, that was all. And you're just like, what? No. Yeah. No. I, I, like, it, so it feels, it feels like it lets you down a little bit.
1: It does. Absolutely. And everybody knows I'm a fan of songs that defy expectations, but there are also some cases where those expectations are justified, I think. And and that's one of them, you know, as I say, it's a beautifully composed song up until that point. And then it just kind of whiffs it at the end.
0: Well, and if you're going to defy expectations, you got to over deliver. Yes. like you, you can't <laughs> yeah, you can't defy expectations and be like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Yeah, like and and that to me, um, that's very Slayer esque in the sense that my thing that I struggle with Slayer and have struggled with for their entire discography is that often the best riff in the song is the one that they only use for a few seconds yeah you've talked about that
1: before yeah yeah yeah, and
0: then uh and so here i was expecting this to like really kind of blow up and it didn't but i do even having said that even with this sort of disappointing ending still feel like it's a better tune than hypnosis uh i like it i just don't like it at number 10
1: yeah no, that's fair enough as i i think i'd agree with you it is better than hypnosis but it could have been an absolute classic to end the album on and it's it just unfortunately qu- isn't quite because of that weird letdown at the end.
0: What song would you have put if you if you had to substitute a song in at number 10? Ah uh,
1: man, I don't know because I mean like once we get past Disciples of the Watch, you know, none of the tracks from that point on live up to the rest of the album for me. So uh I mean maybe I'd have like swapped the whole thing around and ended the album on Disciples because that that would be a hell of a track to end on, wouldn't it?
0: Well, I it would, but I would put it... I think I, if I was picking any one song, I would put The Preacher there just because it has such a great finish that it would... Oh, okay, yeah. That yeah. it would make me want to turn the album over immediately again.
1: Yeah, no, that's so a So I
0: think I would probably swap, and I don't know, because we have Hypnosis, Disciples of the Watch. Yeah, so maybe I would have put this song... Uh, number 10, I would have put at maybe number eight, you know, and I would have ta- I would have swapped it. I, I would have bumped Nobody's Fault to After Disciples of the Watch and then put Preacher at the end um, yeah, so I- that it, it finished with Day of Reckoning and Preacher.
1: I can see that. But I mean, honestly, more than anything, I would rather, I, I would actually just cut tracks seven, eight, and nine and just go like you know have tracks one to six through disciples and then end with uh the instrumental and have a 20 minute album (laughs) yeah sure (laughs) yeah totally but i mean you know and we're nitpicking and this is the thing we are you know complaining about a few things but overall this is a classic album yes there are a couple of things. but the highs on this album are so high And the whole thing is well-paced enough. And I think it is a very well-paced album. That, as a whole, it absolutely still stands up. Yes, terrible production. Yes, you can tell that it's, you know, 1980s thrash uh, and all that sort of, you know, with all the good and bad that comes with it. But it is an absolute classic album.
0: I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, I feel like so many of the songs on this album do have that blueprint feel to them of, like, this is what Testament sounds like. And for their early albums, I think it's just a stellar example of like their, and again, because of the, uh, the Skolnick and Peterson uh, collaboration throughout this entire album, it just, to me, it, it has the magic of what I love about Testament.
1: Yeah, couldn't agree more. All right, and that is our album for this episode. Uh, so before we get to the homework, let me just remind everybody that if you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon uh, Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thrash it out. Uh, as I said before, you know, all we ask is a dollar an episode. Uh, if you think it's worth that and you can afford it in these weird times, go over there, click that link and, uh, you know, chuck us a pledge and it would be very much appreciated. Uh, meanwhile, if you want to get in touch, go to thrash it for links to email and Twitter. And you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out so homework brian what are we going to talk about next time
0: well we are going to talk about an album that came out this year and wow you know at the beginning of the show we were talking a little bit about uh what albums are sort of getting people through or what albums do you keep gravitating to you know over the past several months and this is definitely one of those albums for me it is uh five the new studio album from havoc that came out on may 1st 2020 um it is, well, I, you know, I'll save my commentary on it for when we actually talk about it. But sure. yes, yeah, so Havoc's 5, or V, is the their fifth studio album, came out on May 1st, 2020. That is going to be our homework for the next episode.
1: And as, as is so often the case, I'm not sure I've ever heard anything by Havoc, or if I have, I don't remember it. Uh, so yeah, that's going to be, as always, an interesting episode.
0: Brilliant yes and for anybody that's searching for him, it's h-a-v-o-k is the uh is the spelling of the band of course and um <laughs> and, yeah and you it won't be hard to find this album it's been getting a lot of discussion since it came out in may so all
1: right fantastic uh great well thank you for listening everyone and uh we'll see you next time until then keep thrashing
0: take care